Well, good morning, everyone, and Merry Christmas to all of you. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be reading this morning. We'll be in bits and pieces of 1 and 2, but our main text is going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And actual, actually, I'm just going to read one verse. It's going to be verse 16. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, page 682 in your church Bibles. you're new to West Cohasset, my name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as the pastor. Let's read verse 16 together, and just quickly, tomorrow evening, as Jim said, at four o'clock, we will be having our Christmas Eve service, and just keep in mind, as you're out and about today doing the things that you do, uh, be alert to the opportunity of inviting someone to that service. Um, it will be good for them, Hopefully. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together, please, as we pray and seek the help that we need from our gracious God. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Gracious God, we pray that you would please glorify yourself powerfully now as we open up your book and consider these things, these things that mark much of the first Christmas story. In this, Father, we know and and actually feel this morning that we're going to need everything We're going to need everything if we're going to be able to speak and listen and and to consider. If our minds, God, are now on earthly things, please, for Jesus' sake, remove them so that we may enter into your presence and consider these things this morning. For Jesus' sake, we ask. Amen. The final three victims of the horrible massacre of Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, were laid to rest yesterday. And in the 2,000 years or so since this horrible event we have read of this morning, that was part and parcel of the first Christmas story, we are reminded, I think, what we all suspect, that this world hasn't really changed much at all. 2,000 years ago, says William Barclay in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, it was estimated that no less than 20 baby boys were murdered at Herod's command. 20 20 babies, and of course, when I read that, the number just leaped off the page because as you know, nine days ago, 20 children were murdered in Newtown, Connecticut. 20 children, seven adults, and a young man who took his own life. So I said to myself this week that the first century... And the 21st century seemed strikingly, eerily alike. It was the words of the Magi, Magi from the East, that began to set Herod the Great, as he liked to be called off. The king of the Jews has been born. When Herod was set off, he gave this unbelievable uh, order. You can see that in verse 16, if your Bible is open, to kill. The Greek word there is where we get our English word, annihilate. 
And that's what Herod wanted. He wanted annihilation. Annihilate all male babies two years old and under in Bethlehem. And you could just hear the captain of the guard say, all of them, your majesty? And then Herod would reply, yeah, all of them. Indiscriminately, sir? Yes, just do it and hurry. Throughout Bethlehem, sir? Yeah, and the surrounding areas as well. I want every male child under two throughout Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. I want them killed. I want them annihilated. I want them gone. I will remain king. Well, that's part of the Christmas story and what a part that is. And as of yet, I've never seen in any Christmas card this scene that I read in verse 16. And I can't recall in all the Christmas pageants that I've been a part of, this scene ever reenacted. In my, in my weekly readings, I came across something that threw me off my chair almost. It said this. It's actually a little cartoon. And the lady says, my husband likes those nativity cards, but I prefer something more Christmassy. And I read that. I didn't know if I should laugh or cry. Because we can't escape what is part and parcel of the first Christmas story in Bethlehem. And, and we have to take a moment and try to imagine the scene. There's those little baby boys. And they're being ripped from their mother's arms. Their, their brothers and sisters, that they have them, are sobbing. Mothers being chased down by soldiers. Fathers and grandfathers helpless, powerless. They can't do anything. Little bodies. Little bodies bloody just there, lying there still. We sing the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, How Still We See Thee Lie. And that's a nice song, but it's not the whole story, is it? Bethlehem's first Christmas was marked by greed. It was marked by evil. It was marked by shock and death and wailing and weeping. Verse 17 and 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah was a place just outside of Bethlehem where centuries before the Babylonians used as a prisoner of war camp, a POW camp from which to deport the conquered Israelite people. And it was also the place where Rachel, verse 18, was buried. And Matthew writes in verse 18 something akin to someone spinning in their grave or turning over in their grave. Rachel is weeping for the children. She's weeping in her grave. Her, her first cries because of the exiles of God's, exile of God's people in 586 B.C. Jeremiah records that for, for us. Ramah, the deportation station for the Israelite people. But as always the case in history, not all the people. Because if you were too old and you were too weak and you were too poor and too helpless to make the trip, the long trip from Israel to Babylon, you were going to be slaughtered. You're going to be killed. Because nobody has time for the old, the weak, and the poor, and the helpless. And it's the same, same, same sad old story. And that was Rachel's first cry. But now, these helpless and powerless, weak male babies are, are being slaughtered by the order of this madman, Herod the Great. Can you imagine? Herod loved to be called Herod the Gate because men love their titles, don't we? And that's Rachel's second cry. She's crying for the slaughter of the innocent babies. Now, I don't know exactly, but as we try and enter into this, and as we try to do what the Scripture teaches us to do, that we should weep with those who weep, and we should be mourning with those who are weeping and mourning, I think you know this. I think it's going to be a terrible Christmas for many families in Newtown, Connecticut. 
It will be terrible for some families without their little babies and without their granddaughters and without their grandsons, without their children, their grown children and and mothers on Christmas morning. I mean, I was thinking this week that there probably were gifts that were wrapped on December 17th that's going to stay wrapped on December 25th. Will there not be weeping and mourning in Connecticut? But not just in Connecticut. I mean, let's be really honest. It's going to be in Colorado. It's going to be in New York. It's going to be from people in every state of our union. It's going to be in Grand Rapids. It's going to be in the whole world. I mean, that's true. And I'm certainly not trying to ruin anybody's Christmas. But the times that we live in ask for some depth of thinking instead of a hangover from being always, if you would, pleasured up. And some of us here understand this pain already. And I suppose as long as God keeps us all together, that number will sadly only grow. But it would have been just as worse for these families in Bethlehem at the first Christmas without their little boys. So what Rachel's song tells us is that there's, regrettably, on this side of heaven, a very dark side to Christmas. And I don't know what Christmas holds for you. I hope and I've been praying that Christmas is filled with joy for you, that it's filled with laughter, that it's filled with peace and lots of good gifts. I love gifts giving and I love gift receiving. I hope, I hope your Christmas is filled with all those joys. And more than that, I hope your Christmas is felt as you have the felt presence of Jesus Christ, his pleasure and his blessing on your, on your family assemblies. But for some people, Christmas is going to be like Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So for some of us, it's going to be sorrow. It's going to be pain. It's going to be loneliness. Loneliness that we've never felt before. And it's going to be heartbreaking and maybe even despair. And if that is true of any of us here this morning, then you need to know that that was part of the first Christmas story. If we're going to be really honest and not pretend... Part of the Christmas story was marked by this sadness and despair. So your Christmas may have a bit of verse 18 of Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And with 11,000 people a day dying of AIDS, 45 murders committed every day in the United States, every day, over 100,000 teens run away from home every year in America. 16,000 children dying a day from some type of hunger-related issue. You won't be alone. The sorrow and sickness that marks this world is regrettably only growing. You see, the Christmas of the Bible doesn't run away from that kind of pain. The Christmas of the Bible tells us that God loves this world so much by sending Jesus. But what a mess this world is in. What a mess this world is in. And it so often seems to me that every time we have something horrible happen and we begin to start to recover from it. I mean, if you care about these things, it hurts. And then, and then you recover and then something else comes and we're right, brought right back into that same old ugly chaos. This week, I just Googled this phrase, horrible events in the last 12 years. Genocide in Darfur. Conflict in Israel, Civil War, Chad, Drug Wars, Mexico, War in Somalia, Terrorist Attack in U.S., Egypt, Britain, Spain, Congo, Civil War, 12 Dead in Terrorist, Parliament Attack in India, and on and on. You see, the Christmas of the Bible is set in the midst of a dark world. And it isn't just dark news in the world, is it? It could be personal news. It was personal for Mary and Joseph. Many of us will go home 
or relatives or our kids will come home and will find out that they've made the most horrible of choices. And you'll find yourself powerless to do anything about it and their choices that they have made are going to cast a long shadow over their life and you know you can't fix it. But as I thought about these opening chapters and I said, okay, Matthew, what are you trying to teach us here in one and two? I think the obvious thing we know is that Jesus is God's son and he was sent to save us from our sins. We'll talk about that tomorrow evening. Lord willing, I should say. We'll talk about that tomorrow evening. But I think what Matthew is doing, if we think carefully about these two chapters, he's putting two choices before us. Who will you follow this Christmas? Who, you, who will you follow this Christmas and all spared into the new year? Who are you going to follow? Are you going to go Christ's way? That's what the wise men did. Will you go Christ's way and seek to worship him and lay your life before him, giving him as they did the very best of their gifts, the very best of their heart and will to him as these wise men gave the very best of what they had? Will you ask yourself over and over again one of the most exceptional questions that anybody could ever ask themselves? What is the very most and the very best I can do and give for Jesus Christ? Will you follow the wise men or will you be like Herod and seek to be king yourself? And you see Jesus as a threat, as an enemy, a threat to your freedom, to your future, a threat to the self-governing that you like. And so you're like Herod and, and, and maybe not as mean with it, but you're just going to have to get Jesus removed from the situation. You're going to have to, in the nicest of ways, wipe him out. Because you know and I know there can only be one king. And that's, I think, the choice that Matthew puts us before the, us this morning. Will you bow to Jesus and trust him, bringing all your treasures before him? Or are you going to be like Herod and be your own king and call your own shots? Because that's what kings do. So in this, I wonder, can you hear the two kings in the passage? Listen to verse 1, of three, 1 to 3 of chapter 2 in Matthew's gospel. There's going to be two kings here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In other words, we've come to get down on our knees and give reverence and give ourselves to this newborn king. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Who, who's going to be king? That's the question. You should know that that word disturbed used in verse 3 is used only one other time in the New Testament and is used for Jesus in, in John chapter 11 when he is understanding or coming to the reality that his friend Lazarus is dead and he is weeping outside the tomb. But that weeping that Jesus is doing, I think it's, it's probably one of the worst translations in the NIV. It's actually a kind of fuming cry. It's a huffing and puffing kind of a snarling cry that Jesus has because he's fuming at death. Because he knows death isn't natural. But Herod is not doing that. Herod here is huffing and puffing and fuming because he can't stand the fact that there is a king that is born. That the king of the Jews is born and he's come and I suspect Herod knows then his, his reign is coming to an end so there's two kings that's our first question there's the God king and then there's the man-made king if you, if you wish there's two Christmases there's the God-made Christmas and the man-made Christmas on the other hand there's Herod Herod the Great still can't get over that <laughs> I, just, I just I just can't get over that Herod the Great I, I just, he must have loved that. What a guy he must have been. Half Jew, half Edomite, 
appointed by, by Rome and Roman Senate in 40 BC. He had been king for many, many years now, over 30 years. He was really, really good at what he did. He was a statesman. He was a builder. He was an economist. He was a politician, but he was paranoid. And he was always worried about the day. Now, what day? Well, the day if and when the true king from the Davidic dynasty would come. Because he knew he wasn't the true king. Now, it's very, very human, isn't it? Herod's clock is ticking. He's, he's an aging man. But he's not thinking about his clock ticking. He's not thinking about what's going to happen after he dies. He's thinking about how to destroy the promised king to come and how that king and not Herod is the rightful eternal heir. And if you just flip your Bible back to page one of chapter, or chapter one of Matthew, what you'll see is that long list of names that you think, holy cow, why is that there? Well, it's there for a purpose. It's Matthew telling us, lining up the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and it's making it very, very clear that this Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, is part of the Davidic dynasty. He, if you would, is a true blood. The Christ child is God's son. He just hasn't dropped out of the sky. The whole of chapter one in Matthew does what I said. It is establishing the royal credentials of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice there in verse two of chapter two, he wasn't born to be king. Verse two, he was born king. Do you understand that? He was born king. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? This is the God-born king. That's why we don't make Jesus Lord he is already Lord. And even Herod acknowledges the same thing when in verse 4 he asks where the Christ was to be born. And Christ was the technical term for the anointed one, God's anointed king. In fact, you could say it like this, God's anointed final king. And so Matthew wisely structures the two chapters around the Old Testament prophecies. And he's doing this purposely to show us that at every point of the Christmas story, including the horrible point of these babies dying that God is in control of history that at every point as you see all those names and all those years that are added in those names at every point of history Jesus Christ's death and Jesus Christ's birth was if you would predicted and promised centuries ago and that he is the one that we've been waiting for just look at your Bibles chapter 1 verse 22 of Matthew there is Isaiah's promise 700 years before the birth the Messiah will, will be born of a virgin chapter 2 verse 6 there's Micah's promise Micah from the Old Testament not from West Cohasset <laughs> 700 years before the birth the child will be born in Bethlehem chapter 2 verse 15 the calling of the Messiah out of Egypt that is a prophecy from Hosea 800 years before out of Egypt I will call my son then chapter 2 verse 17 which we read Jeremiah's prophecy 580 years before and what Matthew is doing is this he's taking the Bible and as crazy as it is He's taking the Bible, and you see this little page, and you're, we all have it in our Bibles. You can't see it, but you're going to see it in a minute. He's taking this little divider page, and essentially what he's doing, be careful here, Joe. This is my Bible, by the way. He's ripping it out. He's ripping it out. And he's saying the, that page is essentially useless because the Bible, Old and New Testament, is a book about Jesus, so there really is no dividing. That's a good illustration, isn't it? You can only use it once. So, so Matthew essentially takes out the middle page. It's all about Jesus. Now, I don't know 
everybody here, and I don't know if you believe in Jesus or not this morning. I don't know, but I know this, that many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ because they recognize the reality of these Old Testament promises, and they were honest with themselves, and they saw the complete fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And they just sat down and said, look, I'll just be lying to myself if I think that these things aren't true when they speak about Jesus Christ. My friend Yalishwar, from way back, it's getting longer and longer every Christmas, but my friend Yalishwar, way back when he was first coming to grips with Jesus Christ, as his Lord, he said to me in his wonderful accent, and I'm, which I'm going to brutalize, he says, yes, Joe, yes, Joe, yes, Joe, I can see that there's more to this book than I ever knew. And this tells me that in, in this world, in the world of Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 and 18, and all that craziness, Jesus Christ is in control of the future. Loved ones, Jesus Christ is in control of our future. Jesus Christ is Lord of everything, including the future. And I don't know about you, but I have never, ever, ever in my life needed that to be more true than these past few months. Never. And we're all faced with that choice, aren't we? On the one hand, here's the choice. You can have the pomp, the prestige, the rank, the visibility, the hey, everybody look at me, the authority and power of a man like Herod. He's been going pretty good for three decades now. There's no stopping him now. That's Herod's way. And on the other hand, there's Jesus the seeming weakness of Jesus, and the near invisibility of God's king. You have to admit that. There's so few people know the beginnings. There's only a handful of people that are privileged to know the birth. And the distinction is not just there in in origins in chapter 1, but in their very nature, the very nature of the two kings' kingship. There's There's Herod the Horrible, we'll call him. He'll kill innocent babies just to keep things going. And then there's Jesus who will die He will die because he's the true king. There's Herod, who's so paranoid. Herod was so paranoid that he killed his mother, his wife, and three of his sons. On the day Herod died, he ordered his guards to kill all the people, all the noblemen, excuse me, in Jerusalem. Just kill them. And they did. Augustus, the Roman emperor, said this about Herod. It's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. There's a play on words there. In the Greek, there's only one letter difference between the word pig and the word son. So that's a man who will kill and do anything to keep his throne. But the one that the magi seek, the one that the wise men seek to worship, the one who will die, not to be king, not because he's being forced off his throne, no, he will die as king because he loves his people. Because he's the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 6, Matthew chapter 2. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. See, the true king is the shepherd king. The one who lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life. So he doesn't try to keep it. He doesn't try to hoard it. He doesn't try to push it up against others and say, deal with it. No, he dies. He dies. He does what he was told by his father in heaven. Why? Because a good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. Now, I was leaving the church this Thursday about 5.15, 5.30, this, uh, on Thursday evening, and I was thinking about my death. I've been reading this book about John Calvin, and there's this chapter entitled, um, uh, it's tried, with one foot raised to heaven, and that's how Calvin tried to live. He always tried to live one foot on earth. We understand that, but one foot raised 
to heaven, getting ready for the return of our king or their death. And I've been trying to think through those things. So I had this little exercise and I began to think about my death. And this is what I did. I was thinking of all the ways I could die walking from the front door of the church to my car. It's my story. Let me just tell it. I came up with three. Number one, I could slip and fall on the ice, knock myself out and freeze to death lying in the parking lot. And it was dark and nobody's going to see me and, and that could happen, really. Then I thought, and this is the weird one, I thought I could just be walking in my car and a wild animal of some kind could just attack me and start to eat me and I would scream like a girl and no one could hear my screams, death by a wild animal. Every time I'd come home from the Wednesday night ministries, I always think I see a bear somewhere out there. I always say, there's a bear! There's a bear! Number three. Then I thought that someone could just be waiting for me. They could grab me, knock me over my head, take my iPad, or knock me over the head because I'm so annoying. (laughs) And then leave me there to lie on the ice to die so that a wild animal could eat me. So that was, I was, I was, as I was running to the car, <laughs> this is true now, I thought about a shepherd. Because, you know, shepherds protect you from wild animals, right? There's the connection. And I thought about a shepherd who was willing to do everything he could to protect his precious sheep. And then I thought about Jesus. Because Jesus is the gentle shepherd. Then I thought about a song we used to sing a long time ago that goes like this. Gentle shepherd, come and lead us, for we need your help to find our way. Gentle shepherd, come and feed us, for we need your strength from day to day. There's no other we can turn to who can help us find our way. Gentle shepherd, come and lead us, for we need your help to find our way. Jesus is the shepherd who died for you and me. This is the gift. This is the gift from the king. And no matter what you're facing this Christmas morning, this Christmas weekend, the Christmas shepherd king is waiting to love you. He's waiting to love you, but he won't wait forever. That's our first point. Second point quickly now, the universal king. Wow, that could be like a third way, a fifth way I could die now. Can you believe that happened? <laughs> Point number two, the universal king. It's amazing to me how Christmas, this Christmas story can be so twisted up, especially the, the Magi, right? Christmas storytellers are always saying crazy things. When you read the text, the actual text, Matthew 2, we discover there's a whole lot that we don't know about these guys. We don't know if they were kings. We don't know if there were three of them. We don't know their names, Nor do we know, as some say, that they were from India. We don't know that. We don't know that they were actually baptized by Thomas. We don't know that. Nor do we know that their bones were discovered by a gentleman named Santa Liana. He transported those bones to Constantinople by Milan to a church, Cologne Cathedral in Germany. We don't know that. We don't know all those things. I I think there there's a well-dressed person that stands in front of the cathedral on Saturday and says, tickets please, tickets to see the Magi. We don't know any of those things. This is what we are told. Chapter 2, verse 1. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, why are we told that, right? Well, this is the reason why we're told that. Because these guys are not Jews. 
That's the point. These guys are not Jews. So this king that is born is a universal king. The Magi were totally foreign to the Jewish culture. We get the word magic from magus, which is part of the word for magi. So these men were astrologer priests. And they make this long journey from the east over desert terrain, taking weeks, maybe months. They leave home and they leave family. Heat by day, cold by night, enduring. Why do they endure all these things? Why? Because of the birth of some petty tribal king? Or because they're just religious thrill seekers who want to catch a buzz? Or because they're very, very interested in spiritual things? No. They're wise enough to know that the king of kings is born. Wise men, get it, know that the great one is born. And that is what Matthew is trying to tell us. Now the Gentiles are in. The Gentiles are now in. The king that is born is king for the whole world. Now the Israelites were always told that the Messiah would be the one to whom the nations would come and bow. And these wise magi are the first ones to do that. Listen to your Bible. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5 verse 4. His greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72 11. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Psalm 86 9. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Psalm twenty two twenty seven. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of of the nations will bow down before you for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations so what the Old Testament is trying to tell us ladies and gentlemen gentlemen is Jesus Christ is king and that we need to feel his reign we need to bow to this king we need to if you would embrace this fullness obey the king honor the king as we live in a partial reality of the of these verses well partial reality what do you mean by that Well, you see, the king of the Jews, the one that was to come here, will be the king of all nations. That's what Matthew was telling us. And the sign that the final king has arrived will be when those nations begin to bow down before him. And you have an expression of that truth when these wise men, these Gentiles, these foreigners, if you would, are essentially doing what the Old Testament said that they always would. That they would bow to this king. And they know this. That this king, this universal almighty king, will be the one who will rule over all people. He's going to rule over the entire world in absolute purity, absolute justice, absolute fairness, forever and ever world without end. I want you to think of it this way. Geographically, the Bible says, the king will be born in Bethlehem. Jesus, check. Historically, the king will be from the line of David. Jesus, check. Theologically, the whole of the Old Testament will point to this baby in the manger. Jesus, check. And astronomically, which is actually a word, I checked it out. God's light will shine on him. And I don't know about you, but I was thinking all week, at this point in history, don't you long for a fair, just, perfect, loving, prosperous, eternal, universal rule from this kind of king? whose name is Jesus Christ. I mean, I I think, I know that I'm not the only one here who prays regularly, oh great Christ, please return today. Please make today the return of our king. But hate is so strong and it mocks this reality. I mean, look at the world around us. Billions of people say no to this king and they mock this reality and nothing's changed. 
The title, King of the Jews, which Jesus is given here in Matthew 2, that title is used 18 times in all of the Gospels. And only one time, only one time is it used with respect and not in mockery. And the one time that it's used in respect and not in mockery is when these foreigners, when these Gentile wise men say that this is the king of the Jews. And they use, Jews, excuse me, and they use it to honor Jesus Christ. Now people say, okay, I get you about this whole Jesus thing and this reigning thing, but you know, you need to read your newspapers. Uh, Where is the promise of all these things? Because it's not happening now. But this is what you need to understand. This is what I need to understand. God's people, God's people to a degree are supposed to be awaiting people. We are waiting. We're in this partial reality now, but we're waiting for the ultimate reality. And you will never understand the Christian life. Listen carefully. You will never ever understand the Christian life until you understand that much of our life is waiting waiting for the return of the king. We, we live in, if you would, between the times, between the time of his first coming and the time of his second coming. And we will never understand the Christian life until we understand this. That's why things will never be completely terrific for us on this earth. Please get that. Things are never, ever gonna be full tilt terrific on this earth. We're, it's never gonna be heaven on this earth. We might have moments and we should thank God for those moments, but that's it. And those moments will vaporize. You know the song, what a wonderful world. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. But deep inside, at least when I sing it, I think I'm singing a lie. Everything, everything of earth will eventually leave a dry, dusty taste in our mouth. Now the Magi come and they bow before Jesus Christ. When they do it, it's only a partial symbol of the ultimate reality. You remember the ultimate reality, Philippians 2, 10 and 11? Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says this, that everyone who has ever been, just think of that, everyone who has ever been, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you should ask yourself this question. If you heard me and understood me, does that thrill you? Does it thrill you? Or is it just kind of like, okay, great. Because how how we listen to that, and I suggest in some way will mark us out. At that point, when that day comes, whenever that day is, when everybody bows to Jesus and tells him what he already is, at that point, Every prophecy will be fulfilled and everybody will bow. Some people will bow willingly. Some people will bow unwillingly, unwillingly, but everybody will bow and everybody will submit. Everyone will say, or excuse me, do what God has said to do in Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, go there, you will go there. And Jesus says, go over here, you'll have to go over there. And this morning, yours is the choice. You have your free will here this morning. You can be willing to submit Or you could be unwilling to submit. But I can tell you the truth that one day you're going to submit. The Magi are so privileged because they're the first ones to do with their own free will what everybody who has ever been will do. They will bow to the wonder and the majesty and the authority and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Our time is is done. 
What do you think about when you think about your future? What do you think about when you think about the future? What will you do with this Jesus Christ? The Christ who I've been saying all morning is king. What will you do with this Christ who's a king as a child in a feeding box? The Christ who is king who one day bleed his to death on a cross. You need to keep him in the box. That's the safest place, right? Keep him in the manger. Keep him in the box. And keep him at bay. Or will you bow to him and give him your whole life? Because only 100% is good enough, right? We know this. Salvation is free. Salvation is free, but it costs us everything. If you're new to West Cohasset, I hope you see why so many of us anticipate Sunday mornings. Because one of the big things about Sunday morning is, is that we're coming, we're coming to worship our King. And we love Him. And we say to ourselves, every Sunday morning, I'm sure we say this, it's happening. It's happening. The people are coming together and we're going to sing His praise. It's happening again. And we're on our way to here. Nevertheless, here's the warning. Verse 19, chapter 2. After Herod died. After Herod died. It's all over for him, isn't it? It's not all over for us this morning. But it's all over for him. He died. You remember the movie Gladiator? Remember what Maximus said to to Commodus? The time for honoring yourself will soon be past. Herod, dear friends, the time for honoring ourselves will soon be past. Jesus Christ is the universal king. He is the king who has decrees and he has dictates and he has love and grace. What do you do with him? What do you do with this king? What are you going to do with God's king, this universal king? Well, you have to make a choice, right? Make a choice. You can choose Christ or you can choose yourself. You can come to Christmas and stand and sing and sit and listen, but the key to Christmas is this. What will you do with the rule of Christ? Will you kneel and bow like these wise men did and worship the king and they just poured out their very lives to them? Or will you go back to yourself? You're sensible people. You have to think these things through. You know what life is like with a king and you know what life is like without a king. The world world that we live in is very dark. It's very dark and the world is unsettled and it knows no peace, absolutely no peace at all. And you may be here this morning and you have no peace at all. My prayer is that you will entrust your whole future to Christ the King who is the Prince of Peace. Listen to your Bibles, Micah 5, 4. It says about Jesus Christ. He will stand and shepherd his flock and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. Question, is Jesus Christ your security? Is Jesus Christ your peace? Is the Lord Jesus Christ your security? And is, is he your peace? If he's not, I would, plead, I would plead with you to let him be what he always is. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is God's king. He is the universal king. He is the prince of peace who will reign and reign and his reign will see no end. Can you say that about yours? Is Jesus Christ your peace this morning? Only you can answer this and I suspect you know that time will bear these things said this morning and these things read this morning as true. Matthew warns us that we must submit like these wise men, bowing down, being sensible, and giving the king of kings 
our entire life. May God have mercy on all of us this Christmas 2012. And may all of us here eventually, if not today, bow before the majesty of him, our gracious God. If you have any questions after this talk and after the time we're through this morning, I would love to talk with you. I'm going to stay up here purposely. If you have any questions at all, I'm going to do my best to try to answer them. Let's bow together as we pray. Our God and Father, as we end this morning, we will end the way we began. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in and be born in us today. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.